The Society for the Teaching of Psychology has identified six evidence-based criteria for model teaching. In this episode, we discuss how these principles translate into effective practices in both physical and virtual environments. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer. Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. Our guests today are Aaron Richmond, Regan Gurung, and Guy Boyson. Aaron is a professor of educational psychology and human development at Metropolitan State University of Denver. Regan is the interim executive director of the Center for Teaching and Learning and professor of psychological science at Oregon State University. Guy is a professor of psychology at McKendry University. Welcome, Aaron and Guy, and welcome back, Regan. Thank you, John. Thank you. Thank you. Today's teas are, Guy, are you drinking tea? I'm drinking coffee, black tea. I guess that's coffee. So I heard. My coffee is Dunkin' Donuts coffee. I'm kind of guilty pleasure every morning. Currently on water. It's a little bit late for me to be drinking caffeine. It's still pretty early here in the Pacific Northwest in Oregon, so coffee it is. And I'm drinking chocolate mint oolong tea. I was ready for you to say chocolate milk or something. I was like, all right, there's no tea here. <laughs> I have Irish breakfast today. Heavily caffeinated. Finally <laughs> for this week with St. Patrick's Day and all that, so yeah. I try. It just happened to be the one open. <laughs> We've invited you here to discuss your new book together, A Pocket Guide to Online Teaching, Translating the Evidence-Based Model Teaching Criteria. A few years ago, you had written an evidence-based guide to college and university teaching to help faculty apply the model teaching characteristics that were developed by the Society for the Teaching of Psychology. In the new book, you shift your focus to online instruction. Could you tell us a little bit about the origin of this new book? Aaron, you can do the whole origin story since really Aaron being chair of the task force that first kicked this off can give us the whole etiology. So give us the origin story, Aaron. Well, of course, the origin story starts with Regan, <laughs> as, it, as almost every story starts with. And so Regan was coming on as the Society of Teaching of Psychology president, which is a division of the American Psychological Association, Division Two, And he had like 105 task force that he created for us to do. And I was in charge of somehow more than one. It wasn't just the model teaching competencies, but in terms of this project, he really wanted us to create a committee or task force to really kind of get at what is it that the model teachers doing. It originally started in psychology, but then branched out into other disciplines for sure. But really the call was, what are people doing What's the evidence behind what they're doing that is doing well and is doing um, great work and all facets of education. And Guy was instrumental in that. It actually ended up spanning two presidencies, almost three, because it was such a colossal task and ask where that committee was a really good working group. We met twice a month, I think, there for a while. And then we were meeting once a month for two to three years, basically. And so after much, much research, much of it spearheaded by Guy, the task force came up with the model teaching competencies. And we published a couple of articles on it. 
a kind of a white paper for the Division II STP. And then that was the catalyst for Guy Regan and I jumping into the first book, the Model Teaching Competency book. For those that aren't familiar, can you just talk about what the Model Teaching Competencies is? I will say that my memory of how this came about is a little bit different. I kind of envisioned it as almost like a Survivor Island type of deal where We were initially this huge task force, and then it turned into an article, and a few people dropped off, and then it turned into a book, and it was just the three of us. So it's kind of like we were the people with the endurance to keep trying to push these model teaching competencies down people's throats until they would sort of accept them. But we think we've got good stuff here, and that's why we stuck with it, is we really do believe in these competencies. Basically, what we did on that task force is we tried to say, if you're going to be a good teacher, what are the key things you need to be able to do? And so we said part of that is just being trained. You have to have a little bit of training behind and know some pedagogy. You have to have some basic instructional methods that you use. You have to be teaching content that's relevant to what you're doing. And you have to assess learning related to that content, put together a syllabus that's reasonable. And then also just be asking students how you're doing. So using teaching evaluations, both formative and summative. And those were the areas we agreed on. And then we defined it by breaking it down a bunch of different ways. And so I think to get back to the original question, I think we realized that these things work in the online format. But in our first book, we didn't really talk about that context very much. I think if you pull out any sentence from our first book, it applies to online teaching, but we certainly didn't talk about online teaching or LMSs or some of those specific things that would specifically speak to online teachers. So that's part of the origin for the new book, I think. To add to that, not only did it apply, but we didn't make the connection. I think on the other side of the coin, there's just so much that goes on in online teaching that is in addition to what normally goes on as well. So there was a clear-cut need for what does this look like in an online context? So even though we have six there's a nice number to wrap your heads around. There are six model teaching criteria. And you look at all six of those, and yes, they can apply to the online, but it's a whole different thing when you say, okay, let's actually start from online teaching. And that final pragmatic piece as to how this came about is we were actually approached by the publishers to do a revision of model teaching of the original. And this happened just, if I remember correctly, when the pandemic was kicking off. And I think that's important too, because we were all thinking a lot about what does it mean to teach remotely? What does it mean to teach online? And we quickly convinced them or they convinced us, and I think it's more the latter, they quickly convinced us that before a second edition, maybe if we could address online teaching explicitly, that would be better. And hence the pocket guide, it's not the full-blown, it's the let's explicitly look at online teaching and see what we can say. At the beginning of this book, you talk about how, at one point, each of you was somewhat skeptical of online instruction until you actually worked with it. I think that's true of many people who went through the transition to remote or online instruction in the spring of 2020. Could you tell us a little bit about your own transition to online teaching, as well as how your courses were modified as we moved to remote instruction in the spring of 2020? I had been teaching online for a very long time. And so I think the pivot for both Guy and Regan was a little bit different than mine. I had other stressors associated with the pandemic, namely having five people in my household full time and kids learning on and my wife learning online. But for me, I'll let Regan and Guy answer the question mostly because I started teaching online in graduate school. 
as a way to build my curriculum vita and build my teaching experience. And so it wasn't as a big of a quote, quote, pivot for me as it is for a lot of my colleagues. Yeah, I think I will go in reverse order this way because I think I'm sort of next up with somebody who'd done some online teaching. I had taught online before the pandemic, but hadn't taught it recently. And I think to fine-tune your question, John, personally, it was just more of a question of not having done it as much. In fact, I think I'll go on record as saying that if you asked me 15 years ago what I thought about online teaching before I actually looked into the literature, I had a very different take on it than after I looked into the literature and then after I really did it. So it was much more of a question of, had done it, but hadn't done it to the extent, hadn't looked at the research on it to the extent that I'd wanted to, but that changed very quickly. And that's totally accurate to say that I was the least experienced. I'm fully (laughs) capable of admitting that. And we have a fully online psychology program at McKendree, and I had designed courses and I had been trained in the basics of online instruction, but had never done sort of a deep dive into the literature like I did when we were preparing to write this book. It was interesting because in the last year, I've taught literally face-to-face, I've taught online, and I've taught various versions of hybrid. And then I taught whatever the heck class spring was as well. So I've gotten a taste of everything in this last year. And so I've learned a lot, both writing the book and having to teach in ways that I hadn't taught before. So I'd done the design component of it and been trained a little bit, but had never actually pulled the trigger and taught a fully online course as an instructor before the pandemic. What I loved about the three of us, I always loved working with these two other folks, but we had this strata of experience with online education. And poor guy even had the wonderful opportunity to learn a brand new learning management system like two weeks before the start of the fall semester. And when we talk about online education, chalk is chalk, right? But learning how to do certain grade things in an LMS, guy was really kind of a little bit of a guinea pig. And it was nice to have those three levels of experience because I think we could get fresh perspectives for the book. I'm Quality Matters Certified, which is one of the national certifications for online education and then Regan and then Guy with not as much experience. And so I think it was a really serendipitous opportunity for us because of that. And just along those lines of serendipity, I think one of the things that the pandemic did was had many of us have more conversations with the experts on online teaching on our campuses. Here at Oregon State, our e-campus program is one of the top five in the nation with our psych program being number two in online psych majors, which was great, which meant I could go in. Actually, I was going to say go in, but during the pandemic, there was no going in anywhere. But I had all these conversations with wonderful people, and shout out to Shannon Riggs and Katie Linder, wonderful people who've done a lot of work already on online teaching. And we have these conversations, great email exchanges back and forth that really informed, I think, what we then went and talked about. I would be interested in hearing We've never had this conversation. What you all think, Aaron and Regan, about whether people during the pandemic are actually doing the type of online teaching we're talking about in our book, or if they're doing something that's more of like an emergency remote teaching. Because I've noticed at my institution, there's a lot of people who are basically teaching the same class. It's just that it's over a Zoom meeting. (laughs) We could probably do a whole podcast on remote teaching versus online teaching. I'll just say in brief, Guy, you are absolutely right. What I have seen is the entire spectrum of instructors who are 
somewhat alluding to what Aaron said, trying to make sure they can keep teaching. And I think everybody's circumstances vary. And I think that resulted in a lot of variance in what those courses look like. Some of the courses would look like, I think, what we'd call online teaching and what we talk about. And then there are others that are very, very quite clearly remote emergency, doing the best, giving her all I've got, Captain, kind of stuff that are working towards it. And of course, now, literally one year later, I can actually see courses that have made that transition, that were here spring term, that were here fall term, that were here the next winter term, and so on and so forth. But you're absolutely right, Guy. It's not When you talk about online teaching and in these conversations, I try very hard to keep remote teaching separate from online teaching. The visual description of Regan's hand was moving up as he was saying here, here, and here. (laughs) Thank you. Guy's trying to get us in trouble with our colleagues. I think that the short answer for my department, and we're a large department, we have over 25 tenure track faculty and then a whole army platoon of affiliates. Luckily within our department, because we had a program that was Quality Matters QM certified. We had had a lot of core courses that were already certified, and then they were shells given to faculty members. And so in those scenarios, you had what we are talking about in this book. We had a really good pedagogy, a really good online teaching situation. But there was also other classes where, frankly, some of those instructors didn't know what LMS stood for, had never used an LMS uh, learning management system didn't even use PowerPoint, didn't use a computer, like literally still wrote on the whiteboard. And so they had to rise to the occasion. And I think it's more along with what Regan is saying. Some of those folks were really just remote teaching or doing some sort of synchronous teaching and then some sort of asynchronous teaching that probably wasn't the best practices, but that's why we wrote the book. Yeah. And don't get me wrong. I'm not necessarily trying to criticize anyone and what they're doing, but I do think it's important to distinguish between what we ended up talking about in the book and what has emerged from some people who don't have as much training in online teaching and what they're doing and are basically just trying to recreate their classroom in a synchronous video session. What we did in our department as well is we buddied up in the sense if there was somebody that had a lot of experience online they would help build the course with the other instructor who had less experience or who needed more assistance for sure. I think one thing that you're alluding to, Guy, that I wanted to ask about is the literature historically talks a lot about asynchronous online. And when we're thinking about online education, that's generally what we're talking about. But there's been a lot of experimentation over the last year with synchronous online. And it may or may not be trying to recreate the classroom. There's a mix of people trying to actively use that environment to do active learning and these sorts of things, and then others that are perhaps resorting to lecturing at in a meeting kind of setting. Can you address that a little bit in terms of whether or not your book addresses the synchronous component or if it really is focused more on this more traditional asynchronous aspect of online education? We do address that. Our book is organized by really three kind of different types of interactions. One is the student-to-student interaction. One is interaction with content. And then the other is interaction student to the instructor. And I was largely responsible for that section. And it's a great debate. The whole synchronous versus asynchronous learning has been debated for as long as we've had distance education. And so I think it really comes down to context and situation. For instance, students at Metropolitan State Typically, 51% of them are first-generation college students. We're a Hispanic-serving institution. We have the largest military population in the state at our institution, and over 60% work full-time. And so we try to steer away from a lot of synchronous learning because they're working full-time. Just restricting them to a schedule just doesn't really work. 
But I think that really depends on the class. It depends on the institution. It depends on the department. And so it's really contextually driven and it's really dependent on the situation. There's pros and cons to both synchronous and asynchronous learning. There's definitely engagement with synchronous learning. You could see this face-to-face. I just saw this meme. It was actually a TikTok, and I'm not on TikTok, but I saw a TikTok. Um, <laughs> and it was basically the student walks into the college classroom, and they're all wearing masks, and he's like, hey, professor. And the professor kind of looks at him like, mm, not making a connection. And he's like, no, it's John. Not making a connection. And then he holds up a J in front of his face, and he goes, oh, John. And so there is this idea about synchronous learning and engagement that is really, really important for sure. And having that one-to-one rapport and connection. But there are asynchronous things that you can do to also increase that rapport as well. Well, I think that's why this debate, not only is it a really interesting question, but like the three of us, our motto is, well, what does the evidence say? And I think we're going to be taking a lot closer look at the evidence in the year ahead. Speaking of evidence, Fox and colleagues There's a 2021 report that just came out in January that actually maps how the percentage of courses that was synchronous versus asynchronous changed over last year from spring to fall and then to the next winter. And what you see is a lot of courses, and this is, of course, descriptive data. It's not causal in any way. But what you see is a lot of courses that started off primarily synchronous or exclusively synchronous, even remotely, started adding asynchronous components. So even though I think many institutions said, look, we were on campus, we're going remote, we just do everything that we did remotely, the context changes and you can't just do everything that you did in a face-to-face class synchronously, remotely synchronously all the time. Now, how much of the time, which classes, what can you do? Those are all the really cool questions that I think we are now taking a much closer look at. Last March, a lot of people suddenly transitioned to either a remote or online format, but then many people, as we just heard, have been shifting to more and more asynchronous work. In your book, you talk a little bit about some of the challenges that people may face when they're not experienced teaching online. Could you talk a little bit about some of the adjustments people have to make to an asynchronous online environment, as well as perhaps some of the affordances, some of the advantages that people have come to see once they start teaching online? Well, as the newest recruit to online, I guess I'll start off here. And I would say my biggest challenge has been just the differences in immediacy between a face-to-face classroom and an online classroom. It's just a completely different game to say something, make eye contact with students in different rows, front row, back row, and be able to tell whether they're staring at you or ready to move on versus being online and you have to be reading a discussion board or looking at a quiz score. So it just doesn't have that immediate feedback. And if you're talking about the synchronous Zoom meeting type things, then really it's kind of soul crushing. I don't lecture that much, but when I do lecture and I'm lecturing to the empty space of blank Zoom tiles, it is truly crushing. It is just not an enjoyable experience. It's just like talking to yourself. There's some of that spark of immediacy that really energizes the classroom. I have found it difficult to recreate, but the engagement is just different, right? So the engagement might happen in a breakout room rather than me talking at them in a full classroom. The engagement might happen on a discussion board or on a group project that they're collaborating on using chats outside of things that I witness. So it's different, but that's the thing that was the most challenging for me is the immediacy. I think I would add a couple things too. I would definitely agree with what Guy said. I would think also to one of the 
difficulties in that transition is you have to be a little bit more cognizant about your time. And especially if you're talking about asynchronous learning, it's like I grade a lot in the evening and at night because that's kind of my schedule. But my students, generally speaking, that's when they're doing most of their work because they're working during the day. So that's one issue, I think, for a lot of newcomers to it is really understanding time management. I think another thing is, is this is one of the things that Guy alluded to was I have been teaching online for a very long time. And when I would have a student who had me as an online instructor first and then took a face-to-face class with me, almost invariably on the first day, they would come up to me after class and they'd be like, man, Dr. Richmond, you are not who I thought you were. I would say, what do you mean? And they're like, well, I kind of thought you were like this stick in the mud, but you're kind of a short, funny hobbit. And after that happened, the first couple semesters, I became really aware of it. And really what Guy was kind of alluding to is how do we establish this rapport with our students? How do we establish immediacy, which is actually nonverbal immediacy? That's my hand gesticulating, you know, all that kind of stuff, the visual things of teaching. How do we establish those things in an online environment? I think that's one of the biggest adjustments that most teachers, when they pivot to online, having never done it, struggle with because they take all these face-to-face interactions for granted. They're not cognitively thinking of how their body posture or the jokes they might use or the eye contact, as Guy was saying. And I still struggle with one of the most difficult things with online is engagement, rapport, and, and that learning alliance, as Rogers would call it. Let's also add to that in a face-to-face class, there's that time before class starts, there's that time after class ends where you're chatting and you're talking about stuff. But there are two very significant components to add, both in terms of teaching online, but also teaching remotely. It applies to both. I think the first thing is judging how much work is enough work or not enough work. And I think that's a huge problem that we've seen is the switch to teaching online or putting something into an online class if you are not watching how much work you're giving students, it's very, very easy to have the tendency to say, hey, we're not meeting for all this face-to-face time or synchronous time. Therefore, let's have you do more assignments. Let's have you do more of this and more of that. And there are some really great time calculators out there right now that I think are important. Related to that, it comes back to there is such a great body of research and training done by instructional designers to help individuals with the management of how much to assign, but also to get to what Aaron and Guy were saying, how to use all those different tools of a learning management system to try and do those things that you're used to doing in a face-to-face online class. And there's a wealth of tools out there in a learning management system. Yes, discussion boards, but even how you use discussion boards and all of that and how you use chat, that you can do that. One additional thing, and this truly relates to synchronous versus asynchronous, not necessarily face-to-face versus online, but I think one of the things I personally discovered is how to leverage, you use the word affordances, how to leverage things such as the chat. And at first, I was extremely wary of the chat because I'm thinking, hey, I have 295 people in this class. Is the chat going to go wild and crazy? And it went pretty wild. It didn't necessarily get crazy. But on top of that, I can tell you what I relied on to look at and see in faces, I was now getting from comments typed into the chat. And I still want face-to-face, but I can tell you that having that chat open and monitored with rules of conduct, but students were responding in chat to stuff I was talking about that I normally wouldn't see in a face-to-face class. And just building off that in terms of moving to strengths a little bit more, 
as someone who really loves assessment and appreciates data from students, my, there is a lot of stuff you can assess using the LMS. And I really appreciated being able to log in and see if my students had logged in and see what they had clicked on and all of this granular information. I had a very small class, so I did not have to explore that too much. But in a larger class, being able to do that and set up agents to monitor them and email them if they're not logging in, all these different things you can do is just a wonderful way to increase the engagement in a different way. So in some ways, it almost seems mysterious now seeing a student every other day in face-to-face class and not knowing whether they had opened their book or not. But if I was teaching an online course, I would know exactly (laughs) what they have done in between. And I could still have more LMS stuff in my face-to-face class, but it's different than when it's all based on the LMS. So we talked earlier about the model teaching principles. Do they apply in online or how are they different in an online environment? I said this earlier, but I would definitely say that you could pull out any one of our criteria, the individual ones from our original book, and not tell someone which format it's in, and they would pretty much all apply. There's maybe a few things about teaching, very specific teaching skills that might be kind of written in a face-to-face format. So I really do think, almost surprisingly to me, they really do generalize. Training is important in both. Intentional design is important in both. Intentional assessment of learning is important in both. Student feedback is important in both. And if anything, one of the things I maybe found surprising was that actually what we were saying however many years ago, eight years ago, nine years ago, when we first started this, is very similar to the stuff that the online quality matters and the instructional designers have always been saying about how courses should be designed before you jump into them. So I was actually a little bit surprised, I think, when I got into the online teaching literature, just how much overlap there was. Absolutely. I mean, a few words different. I look at a figure that I normally use when I'm talking about model teaching criteria, and it says classroom in there. But apart from little words like that, everything holds. And actually, one of the first things the three of us did was we took a look at our self-guided measure that we had created that was in the back of the first book. And we went through it and asked ourselves, which of these don't apply? And most of them were in there. Yeah, principally, I think that it just holds water. And that's the beauty of the model. I think you just tweak certain ways in which you accomplish those tasks or accomplish those competencies to the online space. Aaron, can you give an example of one way that one of those needs to be adapted in an online space? I think the syllabus is a really good example. The online syllabus has changed dramatically in the last 18 months. It used to be a standard format as you upload a PDF. And don't get me wrong, I'm not speaking flippantly about syllabi because that's my bread and butter. I do a lot of research on it. But you might just load it up into the LMS and, hey, go check it out. But now I think we're kind of deconstructing the syllabus a little bit. And really, a lot of people are doing it where they're really putting it to the start here module. And they're deconstructing the syllabus to where it's all these different components to it. You can still have a standard syllabus that somebody links on and if they want to print something out old school and they can have, but you really are kind of reincorporating that syllabus into a startup module, a startup week one, however you want to organize your course. And you're really kind of diving into it. So structurally, it's the same, but functionally how it's delivered changes. And I think that's just one example of the principles there. It's just how is it surfaced? How is it realized to the learner? It might take on a different form. 
That's really interesting because even in I'm teaching in person this semester and I've found myself essentially designing courses like online courses where my syllabus is deconstructed to an extent and I just put the pieces into various modules so that students don't have to necessarily go back and read the whole syllabus. So there is a sort of a weird transition now. And this could be a positive of all this extra work people are putting into transitioning remote and online is that people will take advantage of some of the things that are in LMSs a little bit more. So if you wanted to make some money, you could probably start a company right now or add something to Brightspace or Blackboard where you build the course in the LMS and then it automatically builds the syllabus for you or something like that. That would be a great feature that uh, I think teachers would love. You wouldn't have to deconstruct one to make the other, essentially. I wanted to go back to something that Guy said earlier that I think is really important in this context. And what Guy said was the overlap between what we all experienced when we read more of the other literatures and online teaching. And I think far too often, many of us who only have taught in the classroom, and there are still many faculty out there who only teach face-to-face, who haven't taught online, they have missed out on a world of pedagogical practices that instructional designers have been really well aware of for a very, very long time. And so that overlap that Guy alluded to that we all saw, we looked at that literature, I think is just a great testimony to the fact that there still needs to be some better coordination and communication between those people who talk about and train folks on what the better practices are. And right there, when I say that, many individuals who teach online at most universities have to go through some kind of training. But few universities make people teaching face-to-face go through some sort of training. As somebody who works at a center for teaching and learning, I wish there were more prescriptions to come in and take some guidance on pedagogical practices. So I think that's a big deal there. Instructional designers have these things down that we could have used. And Guy, I had exactly the same experience about maybe eight, nine, ten years ago when I took a Quality Matters course and then immediately used all those practices for my face-to-face LMS. What a great world out there, and we need to do some more cross-fertilization. Regan, I think one of the things that's really interesting that you're pointing out is we often think about the silos of higher ed as being disciplinary, but it's also in terms of modality and between staff and faculty. So there might be research done by instructional designers, but somehow that lives in staff world and it doesn't live in faculty world. And there's not a lot of integrations or conversations across those lines. And the pandemic has forced us all to talk to each other in these ways and troubleshoot more because we're trying to solve some immediate problems. (laughs) Being more aware of these treasures that are available in different silos that we don't usually dip into can be helpful. Absolutely. And I know a lot of faculty at our campus have been attending workshops at rates they never had before because they started learning about all these new techniques and tools. And many of them have said that when they go back to a purely face-to-face environment, they're not going to teach their classes in any way like they were doing before, that they're going to port this over. And I know I had the same experience several decades ago when I first started teaching online. All the tools I picked up and some of the techniques have been used in my face-to-face classes as well. Going back, though, to that discussion of the syllabus, one of the things you note in your book is that it's really important to provide people with more detailed instruction in an asynchronous environment than it would be if you're meeting with students synchronously because students are working on their own and they need more information. And I think that's part of the issue that you were referring to with the syllabus, perhaps, by building more information into it. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think there are several strategies 
if we're always going to compare face-to-face to an online or even a flipped or hybrid course, you have these side conversations in a face-to-face course. Like you might have this little 30-second, hey, don't forget to do this. And I want you to really pay attention, work on your APA style, whatever the case may be. You don't have that at all in the online setting. So you have to create opportunities for that. And so one strategy that I've seen pretty successful is making many short tutorial videos. Just like a six-line email, students are not going to watch a video that's more than six minutes. I haven't quite seen the research on this, but I can almost guarantee you to a certain degree, there's this Sesame Street effect. Their attention span's not going to be that strong because it's in a video format, it's asynchronous. So there's not a lot of interaction. So I've seen a lot of people do assignment tutorials, just generally how to take a quiz, how to do an assignment, how to actually have a discussion, not well, I met the minimum rubric criteria and I responded to two people and I cited and referenced my work, which is actually have engage into a asynchronous conversation. And so you see a lot of video tutorials. And here's another thing about how principally it works within the model teaching competencies face-to-face. It just looks a little different in the online format. The beauty about all those too is they can be... they transcript. If you do a video and if you do it through YouTube or whatnot, you can get closed caption. You can get a written version of it. And so that's one example, I think, of having to what I call make implicit procedural knowledge. So somehow you're supposed to know how to do it, but nobody tells you. And so making it explicit. And so those type of tutorials, I'm pretty big on. I was slow to come onto that train a little bit. Because there is a lot of upfront work, but once you get good at, say, Loom, that's the program I use, or Camtasia, or whatever the program is, you can get pretty quick at doing a three-minute video, posting it, and you can also monitor if they're watching it, and that kind of stuff. And I just wanted to add something else that adds on to Rebecca's question you asked that's relating to this, which is, what are the things that are different and varied? And I think when we teach face-to-face, we take just the power of presence for granted. And I think we more implicitly think about what can we do for student-to-student interactions. And I know that was something when we were writing this book and thinking about the online nature. If you've never taught online before, and really that's who we geared this book towards, it's people who've taught a lot of face-to-face perhaps, but I need to start thinking about what's different in online. And I think that's one of those big things that's different with online is thinking about You don't have people sitting in the same room physically. What do you need to do to explicitly build that student-to-student interaction so that it's not just student-to-content and student-to-instructor, but what are those things we can do to make it an engaging student-to-student environment? And that's a really big challenge. Regan, you're making a really good point and also maybe assuming that students feel that connection with students in a physical face-to-face class that they may not actually feel. But just because they're in the same space, we make these assumptions. I think that being explicit, maybe we're learning it for online, but it certainly applies to going back into the classroom as well. Yeah, and just to connect a couple different lines here, just with the explicitness of it, the engagements, you even have to be explicit in how you engage, what the rules are, what the minimal standards are. And something that in a classroom that's face-to-face, you say, okay, turn your partner and talk and you can watch and see and they have whatever, two minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes, whatever it is. But online, you literally have to tell them, okay, your first comment is due by X and then you respond by Y, whatever day it actually is. And so there's a little bit more of, you have to be intentional about setting expectations and I don't want to use moderating, but really controlling, that's not a better word, (laughs) 
facilitating the exact behaviors that you want. And I definitely learned that in the spring with the pandemic teaching, and even a little bit with the online courses. If you allow students to post online when they want to, it will be near the deadline. And that's not a great way to foster engagement. So you have to design engagement. It's really about intentional design. You can't just walk into the classroom and wing it like a lot of us who are experienced teachers can do face to face. Yeah, great use of the word design guy. And I think really that's something that's so important. Even when you're teaching face-to-face, there is design. Teaching should not be an impromptu act. It needs thought. It needs forethought. It needs intentionality. Every once in a while, I run into folks who go, hey, I really know my stuff well. What's there to teaching? I step into the class and voila, there you have it. No, design, people. Intentionality. Out of all the stuff that I picked up in the last year learning about online, the thing that has been most gratifying is this idea that your whole course is in the bag and ready to go before the first day. I've been doing that since day one of my teaching, and it's so nice to hear reinforcement for that's the way it should be done. And so I think that's a message that if we're talking about learning from the experience of doing online in the last year, that's definitely one that I hope gets generalized outside of the online environment because it's just so important for students and for the instructor. As an interaction designer, I have to say, yes, we should design experiences. Yeah. I also want to be respectful of individuals who are in situations where due to course load, they cannot be as intentional as they would like because of lack of training that they don't know how to be intentional. I think it's very easy to say that's a good thing, but it's really up to colleges and universities to help their faculty, to help their instructors be able to do those things. It's a heavy lift to be intentional. And I think I would add to that as well as two things. One is that, and maybe this is opening a different line of thought and questions, but the diversity, equity, and inclusion issue in online is real. And this is kind of related to it. I just read a couple different studies where they're measuring essentially in online learning what modality or what tools students are using. And it varies widely, but it's somewhere between 40 and 80% of students are only using their phone to do an online course. I accept late work for partial credit, and I do that because I don't want to judge people's excuses. That's just not something I want to do. And I just got an email from one of my students that just said, hey, I'm going to be late. I understand the consequence. I'm sharing your computer with my roommate. I just got a positive COVID test, so I don't think I should use this person's computer, which is like, of course, right? But I think we need to understand access. We need to understand bandwidth. When we pivoted in March of last year, Our university uses Teams. And to be honest, sorry, Microsoft, it sucked at the beginning. It was horrible. It took up massive amount of bandwidth. And if you didn't have really high speed internet, you couldn't engage in Teams at all. So I purchased Zoom because Zoom's bandwidth was like, I think a 10th of what Teams and Teams has cleared that up since then. But you have to think of things like those equity issues and what students have access to. And so I think that in line with what we were talking about, In terms of intentional engagement, you have to realize that not all students can do those things. They just don't have the opportunity or the access or the virtual bandwidth, the metaphoric bandwidth to do it. Yeah, I'm curious if anyone has read, if there is research on that with online instruction, that students who maybe are coming in with some access issues, if they're as successful or less successful than students who don't have those. Because I think we've seen basically the same sort of stratification in terms of the health effects of COVID the educational effects of COVID 
I have friends who are therapists and it's the exact same thing for them. They have patients who are doing just fine and they have patients who are doing really bad because of all kinds of other issues. But has anyone read research on that? I've seen a little bit on internet accessibility, but most of that stuff is in the K-12. My wife is a third grade teacher and teaches online remotely right now and has the whole time during the pandemic. And she will literally spend hours with one student just getting them to upload a document. But I think that going back to the original discussion about intentionality, you can build into your online courses flexibility. And that's something that transfers from the MTC to the online setting. And whether that means, okay, I have 12 quizzes, but I'm only going to take your best nine scores, or I have 10 discussions, I'm only going to take your best seven. There are ways in which you can build in DEI issues, if that's related to it, where you're flexible. You still have great standards and high standards, but there's flexibility and autonomy within your course as well. And I see a lot more sensitivity to the kind of issues you brought up, Guy, in online teaching than I see in face-to-face courses. Many online and e-campus programs do such a wonderful job of preparing students for the class. They acknowledge that the online course is different and they do very different things. And I think, boy, just like faculty training, I think the more we can do to prepare students for face-to-face classes, the better. A long-term gripe has been in college, we assume that those students know how to study. And one of my pet areas is study techniques and study skills and what are the skills that we build. And I take a lot of time in my first few days of class to talk explicitly about how best to study for my course. And I think there are a lot of folks who make the assumption that people know how to study. And I think together with the how to study, I think we need to be more aware of, do you have access to the material? Gosh, do you have access to food is a big thing. Something that I think a theme that you've seen us mention many times that I want to underline is don't take teaching for granted and don't take online teaching for granted just because you've taught face-to-face. We always end with the question, what's next? And we've all been wondering that for at least a year now. So please, please enlighten us. (laughs) So I'll tell you the writing that's on the wall here and I think what I can see in higher education. I think we're looking at a new modality, remote teaching. And not just what can we take from remote teaching that can stay when we get back, but looking at that modality in and of itself, and especially to get at issues that we've talked about, access and reaching people who may not be able to come into some of our schools. I see this sweet spot in remote teaching that it unearthed new ways for us to connect to our students, new ways to share content, new ways to get engagement that I think we need to capitalize on and fine-tune and study so we can better use it. I think that's what's coming down the pike as far as I can tell. Almost the same comment, but maybe a little bit different terminology is I pose the question, is everything high flex now? And so high flex meaning that basically you're delivering all modalities at once to all students online, face-to-face, video, and the students can basically choose which of those modalities they interact with. And just to use the example is for students who are in quarantine or what have you, this semester we've been encouraged at my institution to Zoom our classes. 
Well, that has expanded a bit in what students are expecting, even face-to-face classes, to have accessibility to classroom videos. And so is that now happening for everything? Is that just something students are going to expect from here on out? And is that necessarily a good thing? Because in small institutions, there's not hundreds of students. It can be difficult to plan for a class if you've got 15 students and you don't know how many are going to be there and how many are not going to be there. And you maybe don't have a classroom that's set up to do both types of teaching. So it definitely is, I think, been useful for students who have to step away from the classroom for health reasons or for safety reasons. But I'm curious to see what happens if the student culture is going to change in terms of what they expect and if the teacher culture will change and what they're willing to offer students who desire that type of flexibility. Yeah. One of the reasons that Guy and Regan and I work together a lot is because we think very similarly. And we also have our unique perspectives on things. I think that higher education is gearing up for a paradigm shift. I think that there's going to be massive differences in models and how we approach classroom instruction, brick and mortar versus a virtual environment. I think what the pandemic has done is, for some students, conditioned a new way of approaching their education. And I think you see this at the K-12 level. I think you see this at the higher education level as well. And so I think that the schools and institutions that jump on this opportunity, we haven't had a situation in which institutions can reinvent themselves in modern times. And I think this is definitely one of them. I think a lot of programs can reinvent themselves. And enrollment is up and down across the country. There are certain schools that are really getting hit. Community colleges are really taking a massive hit in the pandemic, and they're having to reinvent themselves and figure out how can we do online instruction? How can we do this flex instruction? And so I think that as a scientist, we are in a reinvigoration of scholarship of teaching and learning, how to do these different things. It's going to be an exciting next five to 10 years, I think, in higher education from a teaching perspective from the learner perspective and from a scientist perspective about studying what's going on. I think there's going to be a lot of opportunities to basically treat the pandemic as a catalyst for change. Absolutely. In terms of opportunities, I think my response came off as pretty somber, but I would say there are some things I am very excited about. So I'm the type of teacher who hates snow days. So I'm excited by the fact that we're never going to have another snow day ever again. You never have to cancel a class ever again. Every single teacher knows what to do to replace a class that's canceled for a snow day. And I'm really excited that more people who maybe would not have used an LMS in the past now are realizing the benefits of it. So we're going to have more people using those, which is, I think, only beneficial for students. And I'm hoping that more people are realizing that they can move a lot of the stuff that they used to just talk at students in the classroom, that they can move that online. So those are some of the things, as someone who's still primarily a face-to-face teacher, that I'm excited about how online teaching will have a bigger influence as we move forward. Guy said the word face-to-face teaching. And let me say something I'm excited by is that I don't think there's ever been as much scrutiny to teaching and learning as we've seen in the last year. And I love that. May that continue. I'll second that. Well, thank you so much for joining us and sharing some insights from your book and getting us all excited about picking up a copy of your book and also really thinking forward to what is next for us as teachers. Thank you. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you, Rebecca and John. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. 
You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on tforteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer.